Cyber Monday sales hit a record $12.4 billion in consumer spending. And a new study indicated that businesses owned by members of historically underrepresented groups trail behind in terms of revenue. I'll talk about it with Crane's reporter, Mark Weinrob. I think the big takeaway is that if they had the money, if they had the access to the capital that the non-diverse owned companies have, uh, then their revenue would catch up. But without it, that's the reason why things are lagging. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, November 29th. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial. Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC. A new study indicated that businesses owned by members of historically underrepresented groups trail behind revenue-wise. Here to talk about it, Crane's reporter, Mark Weinrob. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you on. Thank you so much, Amy. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so tell me about this study and, and what it revealed. So it was uh, funded by J.P. Morgan Chase and put together by a company called Next Street, which is based here in Chicago. Uh, and it founds in the uh, middle market businesses, which the study defines as uh, businesses with revenue between 11 million and 500 million annually. Uh, those that are owned by diverse owners, uh, Black, Latin, Latino, Asian, and other minorities, uh, it's 30% of the uh, 300,000 businesses of that size but their revenue accounts for just 20% of the uh, total 13 trillion generated by those types of companies. They call it the revenue gap, and they really put that at the feet of that they find it harder to raise capital and get funding for their operations from uh, bankers and other investors to uh, boost their revenues, hire staff, and uh, just find some experts that might help them increase their revenues up to the share that uh, matches their footprint. Right. So so it really kind of comes down to, it sounds like, the ability to scale and grow. That's correct. Um, these uh, companies, I believe it was 16% uh, uh, of them saying they could not access funding when they needed it. And that compares to uh, businesses uh, that are owned by non-diverse owners. And they, it was only 6% of respondents in a study of three, excuse me, a survey of 302 businesses said that they had trouble raising funding when they needed it. And that's a, a national look. How does that compare in Chicago? Similar numbers or is it different here? Yeah, that's a great question. Chicago is very similar. The uh, diverse owned businesses are about uh, account for 28% of the middle market, but they generate just 18% of the revenue of those uh, 10,436 businesses. Yeah, that's it. That is, that is so interesting though to see you know how that number compares. Was there any city that that you found in the in that data that that was drastically different or was it all kind of pretty much in line with the national number? Uh, they only highlighted three cities, uh, Chicago, Dallas, and uh, Los Angeles. And uh, no, they were all right in line with uh, what we were finding nationally. So it's about 10 percentage points uh, below their number of businesses. So you mentioned um, accessing or the ability to access capital. What other barriers came up You know, in, in terms of right-sizing this gap? Uh, well, they did say that that uh, access to capital was really hampering them from all sorts of things. Um, and a lot of that was due to that they couldn't uh, hire experts to help them 
apply for capital. They didn't have the right people. Uh, they put a lot of that at that the, the uh, diverse-owned businesses are 10%, excuse me, 10 years younger on average than non-diverse businesses. And Sharice uh, Conan Johnson, who was uh, next street, one of the, who put together the study, she called that an aha moment, that these are younger businesses and they have different needs and the banking community has not adapted to fit those needs yet. So not necessarily founders, but just the businesses themselves tend to be younger. Exactly. You, you mentioned her takeaway as being a kind of an aha moment. What does JP Morgan have to say about that in terms of like the opportunity there of what could be done? They said um, it, it seems like they really did have a lot of the tools in place and they were uh, very thankful to have the numbers right in front of them. You know, when they see uh, these numbers, it was a 1.3 trillion revenue gap. That's something that they want to take advantage of, they said. They said they have 75 bankers uh, that are committed to working with the first owners and helping them out. Um, they can increase that. Now they know which areas to really focus on and the amount of money that's at stake for them. Uh, you know, that's something that all, that all bankers respond to. When you, the money is available, they're going to find it. And then tell me about uh, how growth rates are looking for, for various types of companies. Yeah, that's an interesting thing that they found in the survey that uh, minority-owned businesses are growing at a rate of 32% a year. And that compares with a growth rate of 19% for the uh, non-diverse companies. So this revenue gap isn't speaking specifically to the company's performance. Uh, it really is speaking to the, the lack of input. Does that suggest, though, that at some point that equilibrium is actually quite achievable? I mean, the math would tell you so. You know, there are a lot of other issues facing it, but yes. Right, right. If we're looking at specifically from a business standpoint, I would say yes. So so someone might look at that and say, okay, well, well, sure, these companies are lagging behind revenue-wise, but then if this growth is accelerating... Might someone kind of say, well, maybe this isn't a dire issue. If, if, the, if the growth is there, maybe that will be catch up, kind of suggesting that maybe some structural sort of issues are, are surmountable. Uh, well, I think it actually says uh, the opposite. I think the big takeaway is that if they had the money, if they had the access to the capital that the non-diverse owned companies have, uh, then their revenue would catch up. But without it, that's the reason why things are lagging. What does this suggest we might be watching uh, in terms of, of various types of companies and, and ownership? Yeah, well, from my perspective uh, as the, uh, the banking reporter, um, I will be watching the investments that uh, banks make into private equity. And um, certainly this year, I've talked to a lot of uh, private equity companies, and there was a bit of a slowdown this year because of concerns about interest rates. Uh, but now things are starting to improve on that sector and uh, we are expecting an increase in private equity investments and I believe the study noted that there was 348 billion in unused capital kind of uh, on this sector potentially and we could see a lot of that come down so I will be interested to see where they actually make their investments now that they've got these numbers right in front of them. Indeed well we will keep turning to you for the latest in reporting on that thanks so much Mark. Thank you. Coming up, the Pritzker family office launches a $190 million venture capital fund. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Discover the future of technology with This Is AI, a podcast brought to you by the AI experts at West Monroe. It's time to stop hearing about AI, and it's time to start applying it to your business. Explore AI's diverse applications from basic concepts to complex use cases. Get practical advice and real-world insights. Listen to This Is AI on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or watch on YouTube. Learn more at westmonroe.com slash thisisai. 
This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Bloomberg reported that U.S. shoppers spent a record $12.4 billion on Cyber Monday. Spending increased 9.6% from a year ago, making it the biggest online shopping day ever, according to Adobe, which compiles the data. Adobe had earlier adjusted upward its online spending forecast for the day based on stronger-than-expected spending on Black Friday and the popularity of buy-now-pay-later offerings that let shoppers stretch their budgets with credit. And Bloomberg noted, also citing Adobe data, that such buy-now-pay-later usage also hit a record high on Cyber Monday, contributing $940 million in online spending, up 42.5 percent over the previous year. The firm also said consumers used such credit facilities for increasingly large purchases. Vivek Pandya, the lead analyst at Adobe Digital Insights, said, quote, The 2023 holiday shopping season began with a lot of uncertainty as consumers shifted their spending to services while dealing with rising costs across different facets of their lives. He continued, quote, The record online spending across Cyber Week, however, shows the impact that discounts can have on consumer demand. Bloomberg noted that Cyber Week, the five days from Thanksgiving through Cyber Monday, generated $38 billion overall, up 7.8% from last year. Black Friday topped projections at $9.8 billion, up 7.5% from a year earlier, and Thanksgiving spending of $5.6 billion was up 5.5%, according to Adobe. So far this season, from November 1st to November 27th, consumers have spent $109.3 billion online, up 7.3% from 2022. Bloomberg noted that top sellers included Hot Wheels, the Xbox Series X gaming console, TVs, and small kitchen appliances, according to Adobe, which tracks 1 trillion visits to retail websites and monitors sales of more than 100 million products. Bloomberg noted that big sale days like Black Friday and Cyber Monday have been gradually losing their cachet as shoppers spread their spending over longer periods. Still, with consumers watching their budgets due to inflation, retailers increasingly count on these events to see what products shoppers are clicking on, then targeting them with bigger discounts closer to the Christmas holiday. Crane's Dennis Rodkin reported that hackers accessed one of the nation's largest title companies, the parent company of Chicago Title, and others, causing delays in getting real estate deals closed. It's not yet clear how many home sale closings were delayed in the Chicago area by the hack at Florida-based Fidelity National Financial, but Crane's reported hearing from several real estate agents and real estate attorneys that the delays, ranging from half an hour to an open-ended delay, caused buyers, sellers, and others to have to scramble. Rodkin pointed out in reporting that the title company is a key player in a real estate transaction. Its pieces of the process include confirming that the title to the property is clear of obstacles like liens that would hinder transfer to a new owner, and managing all of the paperwork exchanged during a closing. Without a title company's involvement, essentially the final steps of a transaction can't be done. Rodkin noted in reporting that on November 19th, Jacksonville, Florida-based Fidelity National Financial reported to the SEC that after detecting a cybersecurity incident, the company shut down some of its systems, which resulted in disruptions to its business, including its title insurance and mortgage transaction units. At the time, Fidelity said it expected to have the problems cleared up by Sunday, November 26th. But as of Monday, November 27th, real estate agents and attorneys told Cranes that delays were still happening, and it's the second hack to hit the Chicago-area real estate industry in recent months. 
Rodkin noted that in August, hackers knocked down many real estate agents' listings nationwide, including those in northwest Indiana. The difference between the two cybersecurity incidents is the August incident hampered agents' ability to market their listings, while the more recent one impacts part of the transaction where funds and financial information are being exchanged. As of Tuesday morning, no news of stolen funds or financial information had surfaced around the Fidelity breach. Security Week reported that a ransomware group had taken credit for the hack but did not divulge what information it took, claiming it would reveal it later if Fidelity didn't pay a ransom. I'll talk about this story in more detail with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin in the next episode of Crane's Daily Gist. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that law firm Honigman is poised to move its Chicago office from Wacker Drive to a similarly sized space in a tower along the Chicago River. A recommitment to its office footprint at a time when many firms are cutting back on workspace. The Detroit-based firm confirmed to Cranes that it's in talks to lease about 27,000 square feet on one floor at 321 North Clark where it would relocate next year from its office at 155 North Wacker Drive. Honigman subleases about 28,000 square feet today at the Wacker Drive Tower from law firm Skadden Arp Slate Meager and Flom, which is leaving the building upon the expiration of its lease next June. Ecker noted that the deal would be considered a win for a joint venture of Houston-based developer Heinz, Los Angeles-based American Realty Advisors, and Chicago-based Diversified Real Estate Capital, which owns the 35-story Clark Street building and poured $85 million into a major renovation of the property in 2019 to help compete for new tenants. Ecker reported that Honigman has nearly 50 attorneys in Chicago today, almost twice the number it had when it subleased the Skadden space in 2017. But Ecker noted that with many people using the office only a few days a week, Honigman will build out its new space with single-sized offices, many of which are unassigned, as well as more space for gathering. The firm's chief operating officer, Thomas Goggin, said that that strategy allows the firm to have a more efficient floor plan and, quote, people get used to working where there's space available, which helps facilitate collaboration. He also said the new lease the firm is negotiating would be for more than 10 years, but with multiple options built in in relatively short-term increments that would allow Honigman to change its footprint based on the firm's growth and how it uses its office space. Honigman has been in the Chicago market since 2015 when it absorbed Chicago litigation firm Schaff & Weiss. Ecker also reported that the Heinz ARA Diversified Joint Venture paid $340 million in 2016 for the 897,000-square-foot Clark Street office building when the property was about 96% leased, according to real estate information company CoStar Group. After completing the renovation, the ownership group refinanced the building in 2021 with $296 million in new debt to pay off a previous $245 million mortgage, according to research firm MSCI Real Assets. For now, that debt has allowed the owners to fend off pain from interest rate spikes that have impacted many landlords with maturing debt over the past year. The Clark Street building is about 80% leased today with the American Bar Association and law firm Foley & Lardner as its largest tenants, also according to CoStar Group. 
Another part of the Pritzker family is getting into the venture capital business. Crane's John Pletz reported that the Pritzker organization, the family office of Hyatt chairperson Tom Pritzker, launched a $190 million venture capital fund called 53 Stations. It's led by Jason Pritzker, Tom's son and vice chairperson of the Pritzker organization, and Kevin King, a former partner at venture capital fund General Catalyst, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Pletz noted in reporting that at $190 million, 53 stations would be one of the largest venture funds in Chicago, alongside S2G Ventures, Jump Capital, and Lightbank. It also joins several other Pritzker family venture funds. JB and Tony Pritzker, who are cousins of Tom, launched Pritzker Group Venture Capital more than two decades ago. Pletz noted in reporting that the Pritzker organization has traditionally focused on private equity or buying controlling interests in mature companies and later stage growth equity investing. Among its growth stage investments are Blue Voyant, Dataminer, Nimble Robotics, Palantir, SpaceX, and Uber. And Pletz noted that the Pritzkers are getting into the venture game at a unique time. The move comes after a long bull run when valuations have come down, but investors are sitting on record amounts of capital, which they've been slow to deploy. And Pletz noted that because they're investing their own money, the Pritzkers will have the benefit of patient capital. However, the fund was set up with a traditional 10-year structure that would also allow them to raise outside capital if they want. 53 stations will look for startup opportunities in industries where they already invest or operate, like construction, quick service restaurants, car washes, healthcare staffing, and wealth management. It will also look for deals in other sectors. The firm, which takes its name from a parable about seeking enlightenment, plans to do about 20 to 30 deals over five years. It's already made seven investments, including Chicago-based Black Buffalo, which makes smokeless tobacco alternatives. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, Mark Weinrob. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.